Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw. Special shout out to Hunt to Eat and Filson for sponsoring this podcast. This week, we are going to talk about one of my favorite, favorite, favorite ways to hunt. And we are going to be in the desert, in the desert southwest of New Mexico and Arizona, talking about the quail that live there. And there are three that are specific to that part of the world. One I have gone over already in a previous podcast, which if you are interested, check that out. That's the Scaled Quail Podcast with Ryan O'Shaughnessy. But we're going to touch a little bit on that species as well. But mostly we're going to hammer down on the Merns slash Montezuma. They are the same bird. And the Gambles Quail. Both of these birds are native to Arizona. And we are going to be talking to the most desert quail hunting guy I know, Kirby Bristow with the Arizona Department of Game and Fish. He is a hunter biologist extraordinaire, and he's done lots of research on these birds, and he's hunted them since he was a teenager. So without further ado, let's get into the conversation. Kirby Bristow, welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Thanks, Hank. I am uh, very happy to have you on because uh, not only am I super fond of hunting merns and scaled quail uh, and gambles quail and pretty much every other kind of quail there is, but uh, my friend Jonathan O'Dell said you were the guy to talk to who really knows these birds and in, in their environment. So tell us a little bit about uh, what you do and, and you the Arizona Game and Fish Department, and I imagine you are also a quail hunter, right? Yeah. Yeah, a little bit about my history and quail management in Arizona, I guess. Uh, in uh, 1979, after years of uh, research on quail and the impacts of hunting on quail and various different management efforts to assess the impact of harvest on quail, in 1979, the Game and Fish Department had lengthened the season and increased the bag limit to about the state that it's in now where we have uh, where we have a uh, a season that starts in early October and goes to early February with a 15 bird bag limit that year was also the first year that I ever trained a bird dog it was also the year that we set the record for state harvest estimated state harvest based on hunter questionnaire data so uh and the reason for that is uh partly because of the relaxed regulations, but also because of a bumper crop of quail that we had largely in response to the favorable conditions, specifically uh, winter precipitation. We'd had multiple years of, of good winter precip in a row, and that resulted in a bumper crop of gamble quail specifically. And that's largely the primary species that's harvested in Arizona. And so... I kind of started, got an early start with a love of quail hunting, and uh, it, it happened to be timed precisely when quail numbers were up. And so naturally, I uh, became very interested in quail hunting and have quail hunted every season since then. Um, you were probably a teenager in 79, right? Yes, I was uh, 14, 15 years old during that season. And uh I lived in North Tucson and I would go quail hunting from my house. I could walk from my house and quail hunt um, every afternoon after school. So I uh, bet you, I bet you that area right now has got houses on it. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's got, there's multiple places used to quail hunt that 
that has houses and or golf courses and uh, but uh, yeah there's lots of lots of uh, gamble coil habitat across the state and uh, and so you you just have to move your your hunting areas yeah so that's it's natural that I would have become a, an avid quail hunter given that uh, history and uh, when I got out of school Did you go to Arizona I went to uh, the Northern Arizona University for my uh, undergraduate degree and then uh, and then the U of A graduated from the U of A in 1993 with my bachelor's or I mean Man, I'm you're, sorry you're kind of Master. a homer like your whole career is in Arizona oh yeah yeah in fact uh, my father uh, moved here in 1962 to work for the Arizona Game and Fish Department, and uh, and we actually uh, we lived at the Clough Ranch uh, Game and Fish Department property when I was born uh, near Stafford, Arizona. So, yeah, I've got a my entire life history has been with the Arizona Game and Fish Department, and a lot of that has been uh, has revolved around quail and quail hunting. Um, in the uh, the late 90s, I I started. Uh, research doing research on uh, quail species um, merns quail and scale quail specifically and so uh, i've worked I, I worked with the arizona game and fish department research branch for most of my career and during a good part of that i've i've worked with quail species i have since uh, helped a little bit on the mass bob white recovery effort i'm on the mass bob white recovery team and uh, and i've been uh, interested in quail quail research and quail management in the state uh, for a long time now. So let's step back for a second, because one of the things about this particular season of the podcast is that I've, um, I've been going into depth with specific species, but there are some broader breaststrokes that I've been touching on during this season as well. And that is that north of a certain line, the environment is filled with different kinds of grouse. And south of a certain line, the environment is filled with different kinds of quail. So you have a smaller bird and uh, a bird that is less cold hardy. That's kind of the the extent of my knowledge of it. What is the what is the break point? What what shifts the gallinaceous birds, the chicken like birds, from all being quail to all being grouse? I mean, because Arizona it does have some blue grouse way up at, by Flagstaff, but uh, an Arizona grouse hunter is a, is a rare thing uh, as opposed to a quail hunter. So you're kind of at the break point from a latitude standpoint. You can go all the way across to the Atlantic Ocean, and, you, and you're pretty much in quail country and not in grouse country. Is it is it is it a heat thing, or or what breaks the quail line from the grouse line? I think you're exactly correct. I think it is a heat thing. I think a a larger bird, uh, birds of a smaller size that are, you know, these are not migratory birds. And so um, they have to withstand conditions uh, for the entire year in the area that they exist. And so birds of a smaller size are less able to withstand the cold. And so, like you pointed out, as you go farther north or as you go higher up in elevation, you'll find that the quails drop out and they're replaced largely by grouse ptarmigans um, as you go extremely far north. Well, ptarmigans are grouse too, so that, that counts. Right. Yes, yes. So it's body mass, so it's the ability to, to retain that's, heat during the cold. That's my opinion, but to be, 
I'm sorry. Uh, that that is is what I think is probably going on. But again, I don't know that I've I've looked closely at that question. But that's my guess on what's going on. It's interesting because there is one exception to it. Well, there's a couple exceptions to it if you think about it. One, pheasants do quite well in the Yuma in the Yuma area. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably largely because of human interference, because of the agriculture and irrigation. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at one time we had tried to introduce uh, pheasants everywhere. We had farm country and they really only hung on in the Yuma area. I've heard that there may be some relic pheasants still in the Gila River Valley and maybe even the Verde Valley along the Verde River. But, uh, yeah, the only place where they exist in any numbers and any huntable numbers is over there by Yuma. Uh, yeah, Dave's, Dave Brown's thought was that that was they needed the, the increased humidity right along the river in order to nest successfully. Ah, so the reverse of that is the presence of the Hungarian partridge, which I just actually got an opportunity to hunt up in North Dakota, and they exist all the way up into Canada. So they're, mm-hmm. we know them as the quail of the north, and it's interesting because they're they're kind of that small body exception in a very cold place. Yeah, yeah, they they are uh, they're still larger than quail, but yeah, uh, compared to grouse, they're very small. And both mm-hmm. of those examples, the 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 pheasant and the Hungarian partridge are introduced non-natives, and so that may that may ha- have something to do with why why they don't seem to fit the rest of the pattern because I they bet. did not evolve here; they were introduced. I bet. So that brings us to the the specialness of Arizona and quail. I mean, there, to my knowledge, there isn't really any place except for maybe I mean maybe New Mexico that has that kind of a spread of quail species. So, I mean, you've got the three huntable, well, really four huntable ones if if you have some vagrant California quail that show up near the Colorado River. And then you've got right. lots of gambles, lots of Mern's quail, a fair number of scaled quail, and then you've got the the non-huntable masked bobwhite, which we should talk about a little bit just as a, as a side note because it's kind of cool. Um, uh-huh. But why, I guess the question is, What's so special about Arizona that has all these different species pretty much cheek by jowl? Like you can you can in theory get all three species in one day in a hunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, the unique what's unique about Arizona is the diversity of habitats that we have, and that that diversity is is driven by the change in elevations that we have available to us. Um, they do have four huntable quail species in in New Mexico and they're the same species or well actually they have bobwhites in New Mexico so they have uh, scale quail gamble quail montezuma quail and bobwhites in New Mexico a friend of mine actually uh, did the four species New Mexico quail hunt and uh, sent me a picture of of <laughs> of his successful hunt it took him several years of trying before he could finally put it together. And when I asked how far he had driven to make that happen in one day, he said it was 500 miles. <laughs> wow. So, so that situation, they all exist in New Mexico, but you have to travel quite a bit of difference as opposed to Arizona where, where you have, like you were pointing out, you can, you can actually 
uh, find all three species in one parking spot. I've I've found that on on occasion, scale quail, gamble quail, and Montezuma quail that I can hunt from one parking spot. Um, that's a bit of a rarity, and it's often not the best habitat for any of the three. So it might you might not have good numbers for any of the three, but you can indeed find them overlapping like that in Arizona. And it's like I said, it's it's because of the diversity of habitats that we have. The ranges of those species all overlap in Arizona. We're at the heart of the gamble quail range. The majority of gamble quail uh, distribution is in Arizona. The majority of Montezuma quail distribution in the United States is in Arizona. A good so let me let this. me stop you for a second. So okay. for the listeners who may not know, the bird in Arizona tends to be called a Mearns quail after a guy named Mearns. Uh, and the same bird, the exact same bird everywhere outside of Arizona is typically called a Montezuma quail. It's the same bird. Just That's just a side note as we go forward. Technically, the name Mearns is more correct because it is the Mearns subspecies of Montezuma quail. Ah. So Montezuma quail is more of a general term that refers to all of the subspecies of that uh, species. And the Mearns is the only subspecies that exists in the United States. The other subspecies are all down in Mexico. And they go all the way down to like Guatemala, don't they? Yeah, they go quite a ways down into Mexico. And they're, um, as you get down towards those tropic areas, the, the diversity of subspecies increases. There's quite a diversity of quail as you go farther south um, into Mexico. Isn't there one called like the splendid or the elegant or the excellent quail yeah. or something like that <laughs> yeah there is an elegant quail that uh, lives in the thorn scrub habitat of of mexico but uh, i've also heard people claim that they've seen them in arizona but from what i've seen the dis- distribution of elegant quail is well below the arizona sonora border so i i can't imagine that there's been any natural occurrence of of elegant quail in in arizona so before we get into the huntable ones let's talk a little bit about that mask bobwhite because I, I i got the opportunity to see one it looked very frightened uh it was sitting in a box at the quail fest in Sonoida uh when i was there last year i guess it was not this yeah no yeah god it was in february got how time flies in the time of corona and it's this cool looking little bobwhitey thing and it seems to be a pocket right near Aravaca in the sort of south central Arizona. And then so there's a pocket in the U.S. And then is it more common in Mexico and in sort of in, in this one spot? It just happens to be the only place it exists north of the border. Is that the case? Um, their historic distribution was uh, pretty limited to begin with. But uh, the most of their distribution was down in Mexico and there was just like you say, a pocket up in there was a mass bobwhite in the Altar Valley, which is where you're talking about. And so in the grassland habitats in that in those regions of the state, uh, they existed. But that Santa Cruz Valley is um, now all of the grassland habitats in there are, have been uh, either changed to to agriculture or they've they've changed. They've become uh, more shrub encroached or tree encroached and so there there aren't any uh, mass bobwhite occurring there so you were saying about the 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 they're only in that one little area now 
Yeah, and unfortunately, um, that's probably the only place that they exist in the wild. They have, we have done some surveys down in Mexico near a town called Benjamin Hill, where the last wild mass bob whites were occurred, but most of the most recent surveys have not detected bob white quail down there. So population that is in that is on the Buenos Aires refuge is likely the last wild population and that is I'm doing air quotes when I say wild because that is largely the result of release from pen raised birds. Uh-huh. And so they're they're struggling. Now we've had some success including some uh, natural reproduction in the wild uh, documented on the Buenos Aires refuge recently and uh, that's in the result of of some pretty concerted efforts to to both change the habitat back to a, a more grassland shrubland type that was present back at the turn of the 19th century as well as uh, concerted efforts to reintroduce these these pen raised birds using various uh, uh, methods of, of fostering chicks with wild adults in order to enhance their survival. So they are making success, but it's slow progress. So you mentioned the grassland, and that immediately pricked my ears up because as a quail hunter in that part of the world, I know that the Mern's quail is your grassland's quail. So you've got these kind of three major habitat types, and we're going to get into it in a second, but but Mern's are kind of higher, you know, a little bit higher elevation. You're looking at grass. You're you're not really looking at heavy heavy cactus because kind of lowland heavy cactus is kind of your gambles quail turf and then if you see a bunch of yuccas around that tends to be your scale quail turf. Let's talk about the Mern's quail for a second in the sense that okay so that's a grasslands quail. How does the habitat from this mass bobwhite which is super endangered? How does that compare to the the Mern's quail habitat, which is, seems to be it seems like they would overlap, right? Of the quail species that that overlap with the mass bobwhite, the gambles quail might actually be more similar in habitat. The scale quail um, exist in a sort of a shrub encroached grassland. It wouldn't be a pure grassland where there's nothing but grass and nothing else, but it definitely uh, doesn't have a tree component to it. You can have shrubs and fairly dense shrubs, sometimes up about head high, but uh, you get any more of a tree component than that, and the scale quail drop out. The uh, the gamble quail is more of a Sonoran Desert scrubland, I guess, where you have lots of cactus and you have sometimes a pretty uh, pretty dense tree ca- tree canopy, but you'll have uh, Palo Verdes and mesquites and uh, ironwood trees. And then the uh, the mass bobwhite was more of a of a shrub encroached grassland similar to what the scale quail are using, but it was more isolated to the the riparian corridor, the the wettest parts of those of those grasslands. And, and the then mer- the, the Merns likes oaks, right? Yeah, and the Merns are a savanna than a grassland where there are oak trees and they will feed on acorns. Mern's quail will feed on acorns, but, but uh, that's not the reason that they exist in the areas where the oaks are because the majority of their diet are these uh, underground bulbs and tubers that they dig up with their elongated claws. Um, 
And so, um, so it's more the microhabitat that the oak trees provide that allows the growth of those uh, those forbs that produce those tubers. That that's the more important part of the uh, the oaks in the habitat rather than than providing acorns for feed. Gotcha. So as a hunter, you've hunted all these species except for probably the last bobwhite. What would you say is the difference in terms of character of these birds? I ask this I ask this question a lot of people who hunt the game birds that we all hunt, and different birds have a different kind of attitude or different character or different kind of you know some birds are wily some birds are just super skittish some birds are kind of arrogant <laughs> um, and and so you've got these three major ones in in arizona the gambles the the merns and then the scaled how would you say that they you know if you're going to hunt them how does your attitude change and how do they and how do you perceive the attitudes of these particular birds when you're out in the field chasing them the gambles quail are the most gregarious of the quail that is that they they like to be in large group and so you can take advantage of that as a hunter by learning to to recognize their calls and being able to imitate their calls and get them to to respond back I often say if somebody's talking about gamble quail hunting, wanting to go gamble quail hunting for the first time, I advise them to get a call and learn how to use it because it can help you identify where the birds are. They also tend to be likely to run, not hold tight, but they will hold tight once they are broken up into singles. After you do the initial flush, then you can go after the singles a little bit better with a dog. Yeah, yeah, and they will hold very tight as singles. And sometimes this is one of those do as I say, not as I do, <laughs> because I but it, it's often best if you don't shoot at the covey rise because the covey will get up out of range oftentimes. And if you if you scratch down a bird on the covey rise and you have to divert your attention to where that bird went down, you might not see where the covey flew to. And if you can mark down where a covey goes down that is where you're going to get your better shooting opportunities is on those singles because those birds will hold tight and uh, and not flush out of range. Now that's a generalization. There still will be individuals that might flush out of range as singles, but in general, they'll hold much tighter as singles and that's where you get your better shooting opportunities. The Mern's quail is quite the opposite. They are very cryptic and and they rely on their on their camouflage to uh, escape predators and they will hold tight as a covey and let you walk right by them and without a dog you would never know that they're there in fact many people who who first encounter them without a dog you know remark about how they were they nearly stepped on them before they flushed and uh, and it wasn't really until until we had guys hunting with pointing dogs that uh, it was originally thought that <clears throat> Mern's quail did not exist in high enough densities to uh, allow hunting harvest. And it was uh, bird hunters who introduced the fact to the Arizona Game and Fish Department that indeed there are huntable numbers, but in order to find them, you have to have bird dogs. And if, if you go in the field with a good pointing dog, you'll be able to f- find coveys. 
scale quail are the <laughs> they're the track stars of the quail world. They run a lot, and again, they're like gamble quail in that they'll run and flush out of range as a covey, but once you get them broken up into singles, they'll hold tight enough that you'll you'll get that's where your best shooting opportunity will be. But it takes sometimes it takes several flushes to get the the scale quail broken up enough where they, where they will hold tight. Hmm. You're better off with with several people going after a covey so that you can spread out and uh, keep track of them and uh, move the birds around. And it kind of takes a concerted game plan to <laughs> to to work a covey good enough to where they're broken up and you're getting uh, shots at singles. Then. So it's my impression also that the gambles and the merns typically don't flush all at once. They're not like Bob White's or, or Hungarian Partridge in the sense that they're pretty much all going to flush at the same time. Now there might be with those two birds, there might be a straggler or two, but my experience with both merns and gambles is that there's going to be a flush, but there's always going to be multiple birds that didn't get the memo. And so another trick that I've, that I've used in, in both in the desert and in other places is that if I don't catch them on the flush, I just stand there and be ready and watch where the main bunch of birds flew off because somebody's going to get up like, Oh now. And, <laughs> and, and you'll get that shot of the stragglers. And there's often a good, I mean, with gambles, God, there couldn't often be a half a dozen stragglers. And with Merns, there's typically one or two because they're much smaller covey. Like, Correct me if I'm wrong, but like a really big Merns covey is, we're typically flushing eight to twelves in in my experience. They're they're a bit more like mountain quail in their in their tiny coveys, whereas Gamble's quail with their big coveys are a little bit more like California quail. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, well, on on Merns quail, I think it's true of of all quail, like you you were pointing out. As far as there's often a bird that a few birds that flush early and sometimes they flush out of range and sometimes on Mern's quail if i was lucky enough to scratch one of those birds down it's often the adult the uh, Mern's quail coveys are generally just a pair and they're brewed from that year where and that's why you have the smaller covey sizes that you were talking about and uh, yeah a covey size of 15 is is a big covey for Mern's quail and um, whereas gamble quail, they'll be multiple adults with their broods from that year. And so you'll have covey sizes of 20, 30, sometimes up to 100 birds um, in, in the really good years. And so when I paid attention on Mern's quail, if I was able to shoot one of those early flushing birds, it's often the adult. I may be giving them more credit than is due, but it's it's almost as if they're going to take the for the rest of the covey so you'll be standing there with an empty gun when the easy birds flush <laughs> or it so could be a case again, where like the, the the adults like i've seen this game before i know how it ends i'm getting out before the the whole that, that could be that could be why they're adults too <laughs> or how they were able to survive to that that point is they they flush wild but but uh yeah it's one of those it's another one of those do as i say not as i do you could hold your if you can hold your fire on those first couple of birds that hit up the easiest shots are often um, those stragglers that you're talking about. But uh, usually, in my experience, I'm standing there with an empty gun 
hurriedly trying to reload as the easy birds are flushing at my feet. <laughs> uh, generally, it's generally known that if you're going to hunt Mern's quail in Arizona, you generally want to go to the southern part of the state, really the south central to southeast part of Arizona for Mern's. Uh, right. Scaled quail are pretty much the only the eastern part of Arizona, and gambles are like everything south of Flagstaff. Is that, that about right? Yeah, essentially. Um, the gamble quail range is includes all of the Sonoran Desert as well as the Mojave Desert all the way up into Kingman. Okay. And uh, and the uh, Mern's quail distribution is mostly limited to those oak woodland type areas. They're the western edge of it is the Babakivri Mountains, and then it goes all the way to the New Mexico border. And then it goes as far north as the Guion Rim, but the highest numbers are down in that southeast corner. And then the scale quail range is similar to that of, that I just described for the Merns quail, but they're in the, the lower elevation grasslands of that same part of the state, and mostly in the southeastern corner. They're, uh, the heart of scale quail distribution is really New Mexico. Oh, and okay. It's Chihuahuan Desert. And it's it's like you said, if it's if it's an open grassland with some yuccas, that's a good indicator of, of scale quail ha- habitat in southeast Arizona. Yeah, I interviewed uh, a guy named Ryan O'Shaughnessy uh, for a whole episode on scale quail. And he's a, he is a South African who has a PhD in game bird biology, who is also an outfitter in West Texas. Oh, okay. So he's kind of a unicorn in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's an unusual. Hey, everybody. I'd like to take this time to thank Filson for sponsoring the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. As you may know, I wear their gear in the field all the time. I love their vests. I love their outerwear. Their tin cloth jacket is awesome. Definitely take a look at their collection of gear. A lot of it is new. A lot of it has been around for decades, and all of it is super, super high quality. If you are in the market for something to wear on your upland hunt this fall, absolutely check out Filson. I can totally vouch for them from personal experience. Filson was founded in Seattle in 1897 when they started outfitting prospectors for the Klondike Gold Rush. And ever since then, they've been committed to creating best-in-class gear for the world's toughest people in the most unforgiving conditions. Here's a thing that's been, that's just, this is a personal question um, for me because I've just been fascinated by it. Why are Gamble's quail and Valley quail so similar? That is a good question. I, I, uh, I'm not familiar with their uh, evolution, but I would, I would think that it's possible that there was some barrier, and maybe it was the Colorado River, that uh, separated those two very closely linked species and caused them to diverge into to different species. So there must have been a historic ancestor fairly recent in geologic terms that was separated by some barrier. Perhaps it is the the Colorado River and uh, caused the species, the two species, to diverge in fairly recent geologic history. Because yeah, I mean, if you don't know what you're looking for, they look like the same quail. Yeah, and uh, and they behave very similar. Their call is almost indistinguishable. Yeah, you can use the same call for for either. And uh, I actually have two different calls. I've got one guy by a guy named uh, Jim Matthews who lives in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, of course, the Primos call as well. Both of them are are good calls for both kinds of quail. Mm-hmm. 
Now, Ryan O'Shaughnessy said that scale quail don't really talk much and they don't come to a call. Do merns? Merns uh, are even less talkative than scale quail. Uh, scale quail, you can get to answer um, after you've broken up a covey. Sometimes you'll hear them answer. And uh, and Mern's quail, almost never do you hear them call. They they even uh, it makes makes it difficult for biologists to study Mern's quail because there's not a reliable uh, population index. Gamble quail call in the springtime loudly and frequently enough that it can be used as a index of what the next year's population is going to be. But when they tried to do that with Mern's quail, they they weren't able to. It's not very loud, so it doesn't carry very far, and they just don't do it consistently enough. Hmm. There's been rare times when I've been able to recognize a Mern's quail call and go to that area while hunting and, and find a covey. Whereas I would say most of the time with gamble quail, I, I've heard them calling before I found the covey. Yeah, I mean, if you watch the nature shows on TV that are set in the Sonoran Desert or the Mojave, if you listen to them, you're hearing cactus wrens and you're hearing gamble's quail. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. in the background music of, of that. Even they may be showing you some other animal, but in the background, there's probably going to be one of those two birds calling. Yeah, 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 and they often use it as uh, as the sound of the West in many TV shows, and even when it's incorrect. I think I I've I've heard them calling in Little House on the Prairie, which is supposed to be South Dakota. <laughs> so they're they're way off on that one. Well, it's like the the pet peeve of every falconer on the planet when they when on TV they show uh, bald eagles making the same noise as a red-tailed hawk. Right, right, yep. It's because bald eagles have this weird little chippy sound, and and the red tail's got the hawk sound that is in everybody's mind right now. Right, right. Speaking of hawks, my guess is that raptors are the single biggest enemy of all of these species of quail, or or is there something different? Um, yeah, as far as adult mortality, raptors are this the single source of almost the single source of adult mortality. And uh, for a species like Mern's quail that are dependent on that, you know, that behavior that I talked about where they just hunker down and hide there, that behavior is so ingrained that they will do that even when there is no cover available. And so if you've ever, on the rare occasion when they venture out onto a road, if you see Mern's quail on a road, Oftentimes, the covey will just hunker down right in the middle of the road where there is absolutely nothing to hide behind because that is their escape mechanism. That is not so, ideal. No, it's not ideal, and especially it's especially problematic when you've got overgrazed habitat. Some of the researchers back in the 70s and 80s found that those, those tubers that they feed on are actually more prevalent in grazed areas. But in overgrazed areas, uh, the bird numbers, you know, birds were absent from overgrazed ha habitats. So the the need for the grass is not so much for their diet as it is for the cover that uh, keeps them hidden from from the uh, aerial predators like raptors. 
conceivably there would be an ideal level of grazing where you might maximize the food resources without removing too much cover. And so that's what some of our research was designed to do is to try and provide uh, guidelines for the, the Coronado National Forest to implement in order to protect uh, cover for Mern's quail while still allowing public land grazing. And so um, I think they've done a pretty fair job of that. Um, and no doubt there's areas that are overgrazed, but uh, they've been pretty responsive. If you looked at uh, a distribution map of Mern's quail in Arizona, it would almost exactly overlap that of the Coronado National Forest. Ah, as soon good, as you get good a, to know. Yeah, and if you have a Coronado National Forest map, it's you'll see that it's a bunch of little islands, and it's it's all just about any place on the Coronado National Forest in southeast Arizona, you're likely to find Mern's quail if you looked hard enough. The, the conservation status of all three of these birds kind of na- nationwide is – I, I understand that uh, it's with most game birds, it's a habitat issue. The um, Mern's quail has been heavily, heavily studied and, and is actually being more managed uh, in the last 20 years. And I guess it has been in historically. Um, what, what are the populations doing of all three of these, these species? Are they going up? Are they steady? Are they going down? The, uh, the gamble quail has, it's probably the, it, it's the generalist of the three species. And so it's able to exist in a wider variety of habitats. And for that reason, it hasn't been as, as impacted by land management activities as the other two, which are more specialist. Um, so the gamble quails, they're doing well, except they are dependent, their numbers are dependent on winter precipitation. And over the last decade, we've had pretty poor winter precip. The last couple of years were, were average to above average for winter, winter precipitation. So this, this fall, we should have uh, better gamble quail numbers. But over the last decade and perhaps even more than a decade, it's been largely dry winters and we've had pretty poor gamble quail numbers. But their populations are healthy in that they're hanging on in those in the areas where they, you know, throughout their range, they're sustaining populations, but just not high numbers. They're the only uh, species of quail that I know of that really loves hanging out in Arizona subdivisions. Yeah. Yeah, they do well in in subdivisions. They do well along golf courses. And uh, so, yeah, they're because they're such generalists, they're able to uh, to exist in a variety of habitats. You'll find them at elevations up upwards of 7,000 feet. Really? In, in pinyon juniper habitat, all the way down to uh, the lowest, almost sea level areas. And so um, they can exist over a large variety of habitats. And, and yet their numbers are generally determined by that uh, rainfall that falls between March. Between when? Um, October and March. October and the following March. And as you go from southeast Arizona to northwest Arizona, the percent of of rainfall that falls in the winter versus summer um, 
increases as you go northwest. So in the Mojave Desert, which is the northwestern part of the state, uh, a higher percentage of rain falls in the winter than in the summer. Around the middle part of the state, Phoenix, Tucson area, it's about half and half. And then at the southeast part of the state, there's a higher percentage of rainfall falling in the summer versus the winter. And so as you go across that same range in terms of gamma quail numbers, oftentimes your gamma quail numbers are more consistent up in that north and west part of the state. You can have some excellent hunting for gamble quail in the southeast part of the state, but on a year-to-year basis, when you have dry year, dry winters especially, your gamble quail numbers will be better in that northwestern part of the state. Good tip. And uh, the scale quail are, are across their range, they are decreasing, and it's because they are a, sort of a grassland or a it's sort of a shrub encroached grassland habitat that they're uh, that they're uh, adapted to and the uh, through fire protect protection and grazing over several hundred years a lot of of the grasslands have been converted into shrublands with mesquite encroachment and juniper encroachment and when ah. that happens there's a lot less uh, those trees like mesquites and junipers um, they take up a lot of water, and so the areas that have been uh, encroached by mesquite and junipers tend to have drier, less water near the surface, and so there's less forbs and grasses, which are the provide the feed for the quail, and so those areas tend to become kind of a monoculture of just mesquite trees and dirt, and so um, there's uh, big efforts to to try and revert those areas back to grasslands, but it's it's pretty difficult in terms of of you have to cut down the trees or you have to treat with herbicides or you have to pull the trees up by the mesqu- by the roots. Mesquites are particularly good at at uh, resprouting from stumps, and so so it's it takes a lot of effort to revert that. Uh, those habitats back to grasslands. And, it's a lot uh, like with the sage grouse up uh, up north in the Great Basin. They're having issues with with juniper and conifers as well, and it's virtually the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So it takes more effort to to uh, <clears throat> build those habitats back up, and so for that reason, the scale quail numbers have been declining across their range. Hmm. So let's talk about. A hunting issue that I talked with Dwayne Elmore. He's a bobwhite biologist. And he says with bobwhites that if you have contiguous habitat, so if you have a big swath of an area of which there are multiple coveys that could, in theory, you know, walk up and, and talk to each other, mm-hmm. that the, the concept of shooting out a covey is false. So there's this hunter idea that, oh, you know, I don't want to shoot that covey out, so I'm only going to hunt it like once, and I'm never going to never going to go back to it again in that season. And, and, and so what Dwayne says is that um, that's, just, that's just a false thing unless you're dealing with isolated habitat where a particular covey of quail can't talk to somebody else. So what he's saying is that with bobwhites, they're fluid and 
what I wanted to know is, is that the case with these three quail as well? Yeah, I would say that is definitely the case with, uh, with Gamble's quail and scaled quail. Um, you might think otherwise for, uh, with, uh, Mern's quail because they do tend to exist in habitat that's more isolated, I guess you could say. Like I was saying earlier, the, uh, the map of, of the Coronado National Forest is a bunch of islands of, of forest land in this sea. It's the Sky Islands, they refer to it as all these mountain ranges in southeast Arizona. However, the recent information on movements, as well as some research that we did, have has shown that their ability to move is greater than we previously and they're resilient to uh, to hunting pressure is similar to other quail species. We had done some research back in around 2000, so 20 years ago, uh, where we were looking at, at bird numbers both before and after the quail season in both hunted and unhunted areas. And we found that while the while the hunted area or the unhunted areas were better able to maintain quail throughout the season, bird numbers would be similar or actually higher in the hunted areas the following season. Hmm. And so, so there is there would be a threshold level at, at which, if you remove birds, it would likely affect the following year's population. But that hasn't occurred. Or, or wasn't occurring from the, the normal hunting harvest that we had uh, during that study. What it really says is there's factors independent of hunting that are really driving the bird numbers on a year-to-year basis. Now, that said, we did show a decrease in areas So in terms of bird numbers. So you started out the season, and in one canyon, you were... Uh, we were encountering more birds at the beginning of the season than we were at the end of the season. And I've noticed that during hunting seasons. And it does seem alarming because you get to the end of the season and you're, it's very difficult to find burns quail in, in heavily hunted areas. Hmm. But if the conditions are right, the next year, those bird numbers are back up again where they were. Interesting. It's also the... Um probably the reason why you set the bag limit on Mern's quail is eight, right? Yeah. And that, that, um, as far as, as biologically, quail are considered self-limiting in that it becomes so difficult to, to bag. There's such a small percentage of the hunting population that bag more than four or five birds a day, that a bag limit of, of 50 is similar to a bag limit of five. Because there's just not very many people that achieve more than five anyways. You're not going to affect the harvest unless you really drop the bag limit really low. I've seen that with duck with duck management too. Um, in fact, with ducks, there are some places that are talking, you know, just starting conversations about the concept of a splash limit, which is to say you can shoot five birds of any species and it doesn't really matter. Um, as opposed to seven in the Pacific Flyway of specific species, because they're they're coming to that same conclusion that a hunter effort and and the number of hunters who are actually, you know, it's like the old saying is 10% gets 90% or whatever variation on that you want to say is there's a hardcore of X hunters who get 
Y percentage, which is the lion's share of any given overall overall harvest of any given species. Yeah, and so the what really drives the total harvest is the number of hunters afield. And that is often self-limiting because word gets out, this is a bad year for quail. You know, the, the hardcore people that you're talking about go out every year. They tell their friends, they, they blog about it, they put it on social media. And then those, those uh, people that are less driven to hunt every day of every season, they see the news that it's going to be a bad year and they pursue something else. And so the hunter effort is largely uh, driven by that availability of birds. And so it almost becomes self-limiting, self-regulating. I have seen something with Mern's quail, though, that's interesting over the last six or seven years. And is that I have seen hunter effort on that particular species go way up for a couple reasons. One, I think it's kind of been discovered by the greater upland public in the United States. But two, there's something special about hunting Mern's quail in that if you have a good solid dog in, say, North Dakota or Texas or, you know, Ohio, you can hunt Mern's quail. You can't really say that of Gamble's quail. I mean, because if you have that same good solid dog from North Dakota and you take it Gamble's quail hunting, it's going to be covered in cactus and choya and it's going to be super not happy and you're you're going to have a very short hunt. So I guess what I'm saying is with scale to some extent, but definitely Gamble's quail, you kind of need an Arizona dog or, or, you know, or a dog that's used to that particular environment. Whereas you can travel to Mern's quail country from another part of the country and successfully hunt Mern's quail with a dog that's never seen southeast of Arizona. Yeah, I would agree. Um, There is a learning curve or a a period of getting, I think every time that I've taken my dogs out, out after a new species, there is there is a, a brief time where they've got to figure out what this what this bird does, and it, you know it, it may be a day or two, but but yeah, definitely Mern's quail are uh, they hold tight. They're the perfect bird for for pointing dogs, and uh, and and I agree there has been uh, an increase in uh, interest in in hunting Mern's quail. I think because the the word has gotten out that there are a lot more people uh, hunting, but I think their I think their harvest is still commensurate with the bird numbers. That is, in good years, everybody does well, and in poor years, the harvest is is very low. And so, a bag limit really only affects a lot of people when when bird numbers are really high. There's only a few years when the bird numbers are so high that there are a lot of people reaching that bag limit. And this is not one of them. And this is not one of them. This is, we are, uh, Mern's quail are dependent on, on monsoon or summer rains. And this year was the second driest in history. And last year, last year was not really good, but it was about average, I would say for Mern's quail. And so, uh, so yeah, this, this, this next year is not going to be good for Marin Square. Yeah, that's, I, I always wa- I watch the monsoons in Arizona for two reasons. One, I pick edible mushrooms, and so a lot of times I like to go to the White Mountains or something like that if there's a good monsoon year. But and so I'm watching, 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 and then nope, there isn't no, no monsoons this year. And then of course the Marin Square in the, in the dead of winter depend on those summer rains as well. 
I'd like to take a moment to thank Hunt to Eat for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Hunt to Eat is a casual hunting and angling apparel company based on community, real food, and conservation. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out the Hankshaw t-shirt collection. You'll also find wild game recipes, hats, and other kinds of gear, including aprons with the Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook logo on them. If you use the code HANKSHAW at checkout, you will get 10% off your order. Thanks again to Hunt to Eat, and back to the podcast. Let's talk a bit more about dogs. You'd mentioned you know, that merns are perfect for pointing dogs. Are all three of these species really kind of pointing dog birds, or are flushing dogs just as good? Um, generally, I would say that uh, if you're going to use a flushing dog, you might be better off sticking to Mern's quail. That's a pretty general statement because it all depends on where the birds are. If you've hunted Mern's quail, a lot of Mern's quail country is uh, these long canyons, kind of the foothills of the mountains. The, I, the best place to hunt Mern's quail are these kind of rolling hills with oaks. And the oaks will tend to be on the north-facing slopes, and the south-facing slopes will be open. Unfortunately, the quail tend to be up under the oaks. And uh, so when you do get a flush, even though they're right at your feet, they're often through trees and around a tree and behind a tree. So you might not, even though you had a whole covey flush in range, you might not get a shot at any of them just because of the of the uh, tree cover. A lot of guys who hunt uh, who hunt ruffed grouse say that, oh yeah, that's the same thing. You just got to swing and shoot. Oh yeah. And ignore that the tree is there. Back to the flushing dog. You might think that a flushing dog would work, work fine with Mern's quail because they're always flushing fairly close to you. But if if the dog flushes when you're on the wrong side of the tree you won't get a shot. And so I think having the controlled situation with a pointing dog is is better even for for Mern's quail. Campbell's quail, when numbers are good, a flushing dog might might do do well because uh, sometimes the singles will after you've broken up the cuff, the singles might let you walk right by them or they'll they'll let you walk right by them and then flush out the back door and when you whirl, you know, it's more difficult to try and whirl around and sh- and shoot 180 degrees behind you. And so dog in that situation might help push the birds out in front of you. And there, there wouldn't, there wouldn't be the uh, issue with the tree cover in gamma quail habitat in general. Of the three species, it might be best, you know, if you're going to hunt with a flushing dog to stick to gamma quail. Gotcha. Scale quail, scale quail runs so much that uh, a big, heavy lab might not be able to stay up with him. Might, <laughs> you might wear him out before you get to the birds holding tight on scale quail. You've already mentioned that hunting Merlin's quail without a dog is, is pretty much a fool's errand. Um, can you hunt either of the others without a dog? Uh, yeah, actually people do pretty well hunting gamma quail without a dog. And you could probably do well hunting scale quail without a dog. Um, if you're depending on your thoughts on fair chase, <laughs> if you're willing to shoot birds off the ground, you can get a lot of shoot, shooting opportunities on scale quail because sometimes they exist in fairly open uh, areas, you know, with very little cover. That is exactly how I shot my first scale quail in Texas. Was I was going after them, and I'm like, well, shit, if you're not going to fly, 
<laughs> right, right. If you're going to run like a rabbit, you're going to die like a rabbit. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I have to admit, I've done it out of frustration myself. But uh, yeah, so if you if you don't have a dog, that can be a very productive way to take both gamble quail and scale quail. Gotcha. And uh, finding the coveys because they call is a little easier without a dog. You know, I mean, it's not easier without a dog, but but it can be done without a dog. Whereas Mern's quail, you're going to walk past past coveys that you never knew were there if you don't have a dog. So for you know, you had mentioned the kind of roughed grass effect with hunting Mern's quail. That's why I typically will hunt with a 20 gauge. But I I liked hunting with either lead sixes or like bismuth sixes because uh, I know they're not really stout birds, but I want to I, I want to be able to shoot through twigs and branches to get to that quail. Uh, whereas I might shoot seven and a half steel or seven steel um, with the other two species of quail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I will uh, I will usually shoot seven and a half lead on everything, but there are times when if gamma quail numbers are low, the majority of the birds that you're shooting are adults, and they tend to, like we talked about earlier, flush wild, and so you might have longer shots. In some of those situations, I'll, I'll use sixes. But on, uh, on Mern's quail, when you're shooting through the trees like that, I really hadn't thought about the using bigger shot, but, but that might help. A lot of times, I'll swing and shoot at a bird and think it felt right <laughs> and but not even see it get hit and then go over and, and the dog will find it or or sometimes you'll listen and you'll hear it thump on the ground mm. <laughs> and that'll be your indication that you actually hit the bird that's also so maybe, the grouse maybe, effect <laughs> yeah maybe maybe heavier shot would be better in that situation the other thing about Mern's quail is i tend to uh, it's a Covey rise, opposite of what I was talking about with with gamble quail, where you want to mark the covey down and go hunt the singles. Mern's quail, because you're entirely dependent on that dog to find them, when they flush, they fly often through trees, so you can't really mark them down well. And then uh, one bird stinks less than 10 birds. So the chance that you'll get a point on a single is less than. than a point over over the covey and almost all of the coveys are over a point so i always advise people to empty your gun on that covey rise because there's no guarantee that you're going to find any of the singles gotcha it might also be that might be your time to switch to the autoloader like a 28 or 16 or 20 gauge autoloader for merns as opposed to the classic you know side by side or over and under yeah yeah i uh I always hunt with an over and under just because I shoot it well. But I remember one year, there was a, a long time when we just, for simplification of of regulations, we had a, a three shell limit on all uh, shotgun hunting. And uh, about oh, 15 years ago, I guess, we changed it to uh, to allow more than three, three shells uh for upland birds. Oh. And I th- and I thought, well, I'll give that a try and I took the plug out of my <laughs> Model 12 pump gun. And it was a good year for 
for Mern's quail, and my my nephew and I waded into a covey, and we had uh, we had five dead birds on the ground before we'd retrieved any of them. Jeez. <laughs> and I thought maybe this isn't such a good idea. <laughs> we can't keep track of where they're all falling <laughs> if you if you hunt without a plug. But but yeah, um, that would certainly uh, address the issue of standing there with an empty gun when the easy birds flush. <laughs> right. Um, if you were to tell a guy where and when to hunt these species of birds, what would you tell someone who, who was say like they lived in, I don't know, Wisconsin or, or Minnesota who wants to hunt these desert birds and they wanted to make a trip out of it? When, when and where would you tell them to go? I'm not asking for like an X or something, but like we've already discussed that that Merns are in the south and typically southeast. So we've got a general idea of it, but, you know, fly into Phoenix in January or something like that. Yeah, I would suggest um, January is a good month for all three. The, you know, the season opens in October, but it's it's darn hot <laughs> in Arizona in October. And uh, and so if you're hunting with a, especially if you're hunting with a dog, they do they tend to do much better at finding birds when it's cooler and wetter. And that doesn't happen until after Christmas in Arizona generally. And so that would be the time to come if you want to hunt all three. Now, um, with Mern's quail, like I said earlier, the popular hunting areas can get hit pretty hard early in the season. And so if you want to if you want to hunt those areas, you might have to come out for the opening weekend. Is that November it or is it October? Uh, the uh, opening weekend for Mern's quail is um, in December. Ah. They they breed later. They're breeding in July and and uh, raising broods in August, September. So so to prevent uh, hunting birds that are just barely able to fly, we have a later season opener for Mern's quail. That makes sense. It's like and, I've hunted doves in Yuma. And, you know, if you hunt doves in Yuma in the opener, you can have like 36 day old doves, which right. is a little weird. <laughs> yeah. 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 So for that reason, we have the a later opener for Mern's quail. Um, the other thing is uh, at that time, and this is not the reason for the season, but but uh, it's finally cool and wet enough that dogs can do well finding birds after de- december and so uh that's that's a better time to to try and come to arizona to hunt quail the problem with trying to get here for the Mern's quail opener is they're dependent on the summer rains which can be more spotty our in arizona winter winter rains come across the entire state in these big fronts that that generally uh soak a bigger part of the state the summer rains, um, they occur in these isolated thunderstorms. And so unless you're playing, paying pretty close attention to the rainfall, you, you might hunt a mountain range that did poorly. You can have a mountain range that does well right next to a mountain range that, that, that did poorly in terms of summer rains. In the very good years, the very good summers, all the mountain ranges get rain. But in, in more of an average year, you can have that spotty distribution of rain. And so it often helps to wait a little bit and get some recent intel on where, where the best hunting is. 
And so sometimes I tell people when they're asking to come hunt with me, I'll tell them, don't come until January. I'll have it figured out by then. Gotcha. For, for gear, other than guns and and uh, and ammunition, I, you know, for gambles, I'm typically wearing, like I have a pair of Filson chaps that I wear because it's just so, there's sticker bushes everywhere. Um, and if it, I love it when it's actually cool and then you can, and I wear, I'll wear a, a tin cloth jacket, but that gets super hot if it's, you know, if you're hunting in the afternoon, I think that the best advice that I can give to a listener and, and I want to hear yours as well is if you're hunting gambles, there's going to be cactus and choya and things with thorns everywhere, uh, you know, cat's claw and such. So you need some scratch resistant stuff, no matter what it is. You also need good boots for all three of these species because you're going to be walking for quite a while. It's I wear thin merino wool underwear and I wear merino wool socks because cotton chafes. Uh, nobody likes that. And, you know, you're just I mean, I typically walk six to sometimes 10 miles in any given day to try and, you know, I, and I will say this, I've, I've only limited on uh, Gamble's quail exactly once. Um, and I've limited on Mern's quail a fair number of times, but it's a much smaller number. But if you want to put a bunch of birds in the bag, you, you will be walking for quite a while. So be prepared for that. So I'd be interested to hear what's, what's your setup, what's your gear that you take the field in? Much like you described, a good, comfortable pair of boots because you will be walking a long ways. And and uh, if your boots are tight-fitting or have a hot spot when you're testing them out in the, in the store, they're going to be brutal in the field. So so you got to make sure you got boots that won't give you blisters. As far as a gun, I carry a light gun like most upland bird hunters because uh, I'm going to be carrying it all day. And they're fast. You want something that comes to the shoulder real quick for, uh, as far as chokes for, for Mern's quail, I use the most open chokes I can, I have skeet and improved cylinder is generally what I do for gamble coil and, and scale coil, uh, modified choke is probably better. As far as, uh, gear, I always wear, uh, like Carhartt pants that are fairly thick because for any of the species, you'll, you can run into some pretty thorny stuff. It's not quite as big a problem for Mern's quail, but they do they do occur in some pretty dense cat claw country, which can uh, rip your your regular Levi's to shreds. But so uh, and then uh, yeah, it depends on the on the temperature. I'll often start out with a jacket that I shove inside my vest after an hour of hiking if it's really cold. But but yeah, in Arizona you can pretty much count on it getting to be t-shirt weather at some point during the day yep. and uh, I carry a, a Leatherman or a multi-tool on my pocket for removing cactus from my dogs. I Some places I'll put boots on the dogs. Usually that's more of a, of a like a, there's some country in the southeast part of the state where I hunt scale quail that it's a volcanic rock and that'll wear their pads out real quick. Yeah. But as, as far as cactus, um, I usually don't, you know, I just hunt with dogs that are used to cactus and have learned how to avoid it. Of course, there's some places where you just can't avoid it. 
So I just try not to hunt those areas. <laughs> I know. I saw Wade Zarlingo's poodle pointer Shiloh completely covered in choya running out of a gamble's quail spot. And everyone was like, oh, no. <laughs> the poor dog had like 12 choya things sticking to her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then as far as uh, prickly pear cactus, that's usually not a problem. And in fact, when gamble quail hunting is good, you end up kicking a lot of cactus yeah, ask Ron Shara from the Flush about that. He kicked a barrel cactus and got one right through his boot. Oh, that would be bad. <laughs> it was bad. So let's talk about eating for a second. Now, I have eaten every species of quail under the well, not under the sun, but uh, in North America, and I, I haven't noticed a huge difference in flavor between from species to species. I my mind wants to say that Mern's quail tastes the best. Uh, it could just be because they tend to be a little bigger. But I, I pluck virtually all of my quail unless they've been blown to pieces. I figure they're, they're worth it. And so I, I get that full skin and fat flavor that goes with the rest of the meat. And I find them all kind of universally delicious with the scaled quail being slightly stronger in flavor than the rest, but still pretty mild in the grand scheme of things. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. I, I think I would agree. I tend to think of Mern's quail as being the best, and it may be because you often have to work harder to get them, <laughs> or it may be they're, they are uh, more plump and heavy. They're the heaviest of the three quail, even though they look small because they have such a short tail. They look small, but but weight-wise, they're big, bigger than the other two species. Yeah, they're like and, little tennis uh, balls. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I I haven't really noticed a difference between uh, scale quail and gamble quail in terms of taste. I don't tend to pluck birds, but... Uh, Blasphemy! <laughs> I know. I always say all quail are delicious, and, and I always say... You know, most most of the dove and duck recipes that I'm familiar with that are that are reported to be good usually involve a very involved process of disguising the flavor. And I, I always say you could cook a quail with a Bic lighter and it would be delicious. <laughs> you don't have to work at it to make them tasty. Well, you don't have to work about work for most birds to make them tasty. I mean, it's you know you're talking to a guy who does this for a living. Um, yeah. You know, I think. Um, one thing that I have found that has been very, very rewarding about not only the quail hunting in Arizona, but the quail eating in Arizona is the sheer, just vast array of edible wild plants that not only do they eat, but they live around. So, I mean, if you know what you're looking at, you can get fat in the Sonoran Desert. Pretty much everything in the Sonoran Desert is edible. I mean, there's ironwood seeds, there's palo verde seeds, there's mesquite, there's prickly pear, both the paddles and the fruit, there's choya buds, there's wolfberries. I mean, I can go on and on and on about the the edible plants that live in and around where you're hunting these birds. I mean, I mean, hell, the 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 Mern's quail live around emery oaks. And emery oaks are the only acorn in North America that you can eat just by roasting. Every other acorn mm. in North America, you have to leach out tannins. And while uh -huh. emery oaks have tannins, but they're they're such in they're in such low levels that 
you can buy a bag of, of acorns from, you know, the Apaches or the, or the Tono Autumn or whoever, and they're just roasted and you can just sit there and eat them. And that's mm-hmm. unique to, to North America. So the, the, the culinary opportunities, you know, with, you know, I, I have a recipe on the website for a prickly pear barbecue sauce that I do with them. And the synergy between region, because you've got the Sonoran Desert and all of the food that is native to the Sonoran Desert. You've got the wild food that is native to the Sonoran Desert to work with. And and even the Mojave Desert has a fair number of, of good things to eat in it. That the far more than say spruce grouse or sage grouse or some of the other birds and animals that I that I hunt, um, the mind can go in any number of directions with these birds because not only they're delicious with a big lighter, just like you said. But you can you can pair them with the environment in which they live and create a a very special and a memorable meal. Yeah, I wish I wish I knew more about that subject and and I I'm always interested in you know hearing stories of of people that have done that. But I'm just not the I'm not the the chef that <laughs> that you are or that others who uh, who pursue these birds are. Well, we're going to have to hunt together. Yeah, well, you're going to uh, – some of your recipes. I mean, if I had to share my recipes, it would be more blasphemy like you said, <laughs> mentioned. I mean, I will say one thing about uh, you know simple recipes for, for quail that is fairly unique to the wild world is along with cottontail rabbits, they're one of the very few birds that you can chicken fry. You know, quail live fast and die hard. So – you're not likely to have a three-year-old quail in the bag. And so that gives you the ability to fry it, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it's delicious. Buttermilk fried quail is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hunted in Texas with a guy who, that's how he cooked them all. Mm-hmm. And plucked or not plucked. They're, they're good either way. Mm-hmm. So we've been going a fair bit. Uh, I would, I would ask you, have, have we missed anything? Is there some aspect of what we're what we're talking about that you've been dying to say that I have I've failed to fail to bring up? Um, yeah, I think I think we've pretty much covered it. Uh, I got lots of bird dog stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me, let's let's finish with a good bird dog story. I shot a bird. She went to retrieve it. She comes walking back to me. Gets within about 10 feet of me, and I can see that the bird in her mouth is still alive because he's got his head up. And she locks up on point. And for a brief moment, I thought, <laughs> if the bird that she's pointing flushes, I, I won't be able to stop myself from shooting at it. And I imagine that she's going to drop that bird in her mouth. And the way it's got his head up, I'm afraid it's going to run off. <laughs> and so all of this crossed my mind over a split second. And uh, and the bird she's pointing flushed and I shot it and she dropped the one in her mouth and uh, and luckily it didn't run off and I got it all back. But, yeah, that was that was one of those moments <laughs> that uh, that you think, oh, what 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 do I do here? <laughs> it's kind of a double or nothing deal. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it all worked out. Another time I had a dog that that liked to carry the bird 
sometimes they're proud of their retrieves and they don't want to run straight back to you with it. They want to walk a big circle around you, make sure that you know that, that, that that's their bird. And then they come in. And so she was doing this and I knew that there were some singles or I assumed that there were some singles in the area. This was a Mern's quail, by the way. And uh, I'm wanting to get that bird in hand so that I'll be ready if another bird flushes. And so I, I yelled at her and she did. She dropped that bird while well, it was still alive and it took off running and it's hopping around in this, uh, in this bunch grass that's, you know, knee high. And so I set my gun down and I'm trying to catch this bird. And in the process, I flushed the single <laughs> that at first I thought might have been the bird that, I, that she just retrieved. But then it, I, I did finally catch the bird that she had in her mouth. <laughs> but yeah. Cue Benny Hill music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My only funny Arizona quail hunting story is is uh, I was gambles quail hunting in some theory. I mean, you imagine if you're listening out there, picture the Arizona desert and all the thorny things in it. That's where I'm hunting. So these birds get up, and I, I shoot one on the covey rise, and it sails dead into a prickly pear and gets impaled on the prickly pear. (laughs) Like I had to pull the quail off of the prickly pear thorns. Like, wow, that is a, that's like a horror movie ending for that poor bird. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't understand how they avoid it because I've seen them land in prickly pear and choya cactus. You see them land near it or in it. And you think, how do they avoid getting stuck? But, but yeah, a dead bird like that would have not been able to avoid it. Yeah, it was pretty pretty grim. Yeah, one piece of gear I often thought you should have for gamble quail hunting is a shotgun butt that has a shovel folds that folds out when <laughs> they run down a pack rat hole. Oh, I've never seen that. Seen many times they hit the ground running and they go down a, a wood rat den and uh, and some dogs will dig them out, but it takes a pretty bold dog to do that. And I've always made every effort to uh, retrieve them when I can, but uh, often it ends up with a long, involved process of tearing that pack rat den apart to get yes. at them. I've had them get out, get away from me when I tried that too. Yeah, so if you could just have a shovel that folds out, then you could, you could. Of course, you'd want to unload the gun first. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> But yeah, the Mern's quail tend to hit the ground and just stay where they're hit. Yeah. Even if they're wounded, sometimes they'll run on you. But but boy, gamma quail and scale quail, if they're not dead, they'll hit the ground and run off and run down holes. They're tough. Yeah. I mean, they're like micro pheasants. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been great, Kirby. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do that if they wanted to talk about quail in Arizona? Uh, probably the best way would be to send it to my game and fish send an email to my game and fish email which is k bristow b-r-i-s-t-o-w at a-z-g-f-d dot gov yeah if they send me an email i can i'll i can give them any information they want or if i can even make it happen i might even sneak out and go hunting with them sometime very cool i i definitely hope to uh get in touch with you this winter 
Um, I have tentative plans to be in Arizona to chase random, random tasty animals uh, in January, if not early February, but probably January. And I will definitely let you know, and we should definitely... Gamble quail fits the random tasty animal description. Yes, Gamble's quail definitely fits the random tasty animal description. All right, thanks for being on the show, and I will talk soon. Thank you, Hank. That is our show this week. Thank you for listening in to Hunt, Gather, Talk. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and special shout out to Filson and Hunt to Eat for sponsoring this show. You can always find me on social media. I am very active on Instagram, where I am at Hunt, Gather, Cook. I also run a Facebook group called Hunt, Gather, Cook. You have to answer some questions to get in, but if you do, let me know that you listen to the podcast and I will let you into the group. It is a great forum for increasing your knowledge about all wild foods, not just upland game, but also big game and fish and seafood and wild plants and foraging and gathering, all that kind of good stuff. And as always, the core of what I do is my website. It is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. That is honest-food.net. You can also find it on huntgathercook.com. That is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. You will find literally thousands of recipes for all sorts of wild foods from all over North America. Everything from fish and game to edible mushrooms to wild plants to all kinds of other wonderful things. I hope to see you there at Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. And until next week, stay safe, be happy, shoot straight, and eat well. I'm Hank Shaw, and I will talk to you soon. 